millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's mid-May and I'm walking in the footsteps of giants or at the very least standing at the feet of one. I'm looking up at the long man of Wilmington, one of Sussex's very own giants. The long man is a chalk-cut hill figure, holding two staves cut into the soil of Windover Hill. His origin and significance remain a mystery, but it's popularly believed round here that the figure marks the site of the grave of a giant who lost a fight with another local foe, the Furl Giant. It's a peaceful place bright with green grass and the vibrant yellow of the oilseed rape. The undulations of the ground make it easy to imagine that there are many more giants sleeping below us in their barrows, perhaps waiting to be reawakened. When the Romans left Britain, civilizations which followed believed that some of the remnants of the buildings left behind were so sophisticated that they must have been built by giants. But perhaps at least some of them were. Looking up at the towering shape of the long man, I can see him hewing and hefting huge stones or throwing tree trunks and rocks to re-sculpt the landscape. Our story today takes us back to a time when England was a new and wild place and we'll be reawakening some of those very giants. So hold on tightly as the ground beneath you begins to tremble, shaken by huge footsteps. Then gather close around the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Three Ravens podcast. 
I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm scattering a handful of toad bones on the ground to tell my fortune. And I'm joined by my very own long man, Martin Borks. I am so long, but note my face, not long at all. No, you have a very happy face. I do. And that's because so many awesome things have happened this week. That's very true. Where to begin? Well, one of the coolest things to happen this week was that Okay, so a while ago, I wrote to Emma on the amazing Real Life Ghost Stories podcast. This was back in December, so long before Three Ravens launched. And I emailed her about some real life hauntings that I've personally experienced. And last week, she read my story on her podcast. Yes, we listened in bed, as we always do with Real Life Ghost Stories, and it was very scary. Well, thank you. And yeah, it was pretty scary at the time. Anyway, if you would like an extra Martin story, then do check out the recent episode of Real Life Ghost Stories entitled Elton Road. And thank you so much to Emma for mentioning the Three Ravens as part of that episode. Also, we should say that, as also mentioned in that episode, the little ghost child who leaves presents in our house left us a toy soldier. Mm -hmm. And we popped some pictures of it up on our social media if you'd like to take a look. And speaking of social media, our channels have been popping off. They have. (laughs) First of all, and most importantly, we need to say giant size thank yous to our new supporters on Patreon this week. Yes. Thank you to Chloe, Jackie, Michelle, Mary and Kim. All hail Chloe, King of Patreon. All hail Jackie, King of Patreon. All hail Michelle, King of Patreon. All hail Mary, King of Patreon. All hail Kim, King of Patreon. Thank you so much to all our Patreon supporters. We're so grateful to you all. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then do consider joining for just $3 a month, which also gives you access to exclusive episodes, the monthly Three Ravens newsletter, and all of our episodes advert-free, all via patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. We've also had a new review on iTunes. Oh, excellent. This one is from Deshan86, who writes, I've just listened to the first couple of episodes and I'm already hooked. Some fantastic folk tales told in a fun and entertaining way. I'm looking forward to catching up to my home county, Lancashire, and the inevitable release of my adopted county. Suffolk. Thank you. And you won't have long to wait because Suffolk is coming up in episode 13. So in just a couple of weeks. And that will be the final episode of series one. It will. Speaking of which, please keep your entries coming for our first ever Three Ravens card design contest. Yes, we had some lovely entries this week, including from Jesse, who's 16 years old, who drew us an excellent and terrifying spectral horse. Oh, yeah. God, that's amazing, that picture. Thank you, Jesse. And please, if you're an artist of any skill level, please email through your own original design that you think would look nice on the front of a greetings card as a JPEG to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. We're looking for art inspired by folklore and the folk tradition and we'll be picking our three favourite designs after episode 13 to turn into greetings cards and sell for a 50-50 proper share with the winners on 3ravenspodcast.com. We sure will. Uh, We've also had such a lovely week of interactions on social media this week, not least from Michelle, who left us a lovely comment on Facebook. She said, just finished episode three, along with reading your blogs as I go along and your Facebook posts in connection. 
Because I don't live in England, thank you so much for the photos and links so I can visualise these wonderful places and Google Walk as well. I have to say, St Michael's Mound is incredible. Had a great virtual walk around. Love your podcast. I will catch up. That's so lovely yeah. and really nice to hear about someone enjoying the blog. Thank you, Michelle. It sounds like you're listening and looking at things exactly as we hoped people might if they live overseas. Thanks also to Tara, who sent us a photo of her visit to Mother Shipton's yes. cave. To Jackie, who emailed us a photo of the Ox Street men and their bull's head sculpture from just last week. So we mentioned oh, we so thrilled. that in the Oxfordshire <laughs> episode. Um, and yeah, she, she took a photo on the day. Um, yes, so amazing to hear that the tradition we talked about yep. still very much being upheld Wonderful. and able to be photographed today. And thanks also to our super sharers, likers and commenters this week, including Ella, Kurt P, Eric, Tina, Simon, Ruti J, Peggy Andreas, Bevan Thomas, Bookworm Saturday, the Modern Fairy Sightings podcast, and Michael and Adam on Facebook. Thank you all so much because, my goodness, the podcast is spreading far and wide. Yeah. As we record, we haven't quite crossed the line yet, but probably tomorrow, uh-huh. once this episode's been released, we will have had 10,000 downloads. 10,000 thousand downloads it's mad i've been trying to visualize how many people that is and i've concluded there's no way we could fit you all in the garden no eleanor's measuring stick is how many our gardens worth of people that is and we don't have a very large garden we don't but my point is we've only been able to grow so fast because of all the wonderful people in the three ravens community who've been telling their friends about the podcast and gronking from the rooftop yes thank you all so much and please don't stop and if we ever get a bigger garden one day, we'd love to have you all round. <laughs> also, thank you all for being so thoughtful and lovely and funny and creative in your messages and comments. What's happening feels really special and we feel very lucky indeed. Now, I mentioned the toad bones a moment yeah. ago because we're coming up to the first new moon in May, at which time it was traditional to hold a toad fair. Excuse me, a toad fair? Toad fairs were gatherings of healers and quacks selling their charms and concoctions. Uh-huh. And they were named after the toad man <laughs> who travelled about the countryside reading futures by interpreting the patterns of toad bones. Did he also dress as a toad? Unclear. I hope so. Because <laughs> I hope back, you know, in the olden days, you know, if you had Spider-Man, you'd be dressed as a spider. And yes. And Toad-Man Batman dressed as a toad. dressed as a bat. Yeah, exactly. I, I hope that Toad-Man was dressed as a toad. Yeah. <laughs> We're also celebrating St. Dimpna's Day today. Oh, OK. She got something to do with dimples? Uh, no. Oh. Poor St. Dimpna had a bit of a rough ride. Did she? Yes. As a teenager in the 7th century, she converted to Christianity and took a vow of chastity. Okay. Her mother died soon after that, oh. and her father, King Damon, was advised by his courtiers to get married again. Yeah. He did agree, but only if they could find him a bride as beautiful as his late wife. Sure. Now, Dempner looks a lot like her mother. Oh, no. Do you see where this is going? Oh, God. Yeah. Well, Dempner was no fool, so she got out of there. Yeah. <laughs> quickly as possible and sailed off to Belgium with a trusted priest Uh where she established a hospice for the poor and the sick and 
all this might be sounding like this story has a happy ending. Yeah. But you don't usually get canonised in the 7th century unless you've met some sort of horrible sticky no, end. that's probably a fair point. Yep. So the king, King Damon, kept hunting for his daughter no. and eventually found her, but she quite understandably didn't want to go home with him, so he drew his sword and cut off her head. What? Yes. Oh, didn't She's still honoured for her virtue and her faith today, though, and she's also the patron saint of mental illness. Really? So thank you, St Dimdhook, for protecting our minds. Well, she obviously had to do quite a lot of self-protection across the course of her life. Yes, an awful story Ugh. for poor St. Dimpner. King Damon, what a rotter. What a rotter. <laughs> Today, the 15th of May until the 18th, yeah. are also known as Franklin Days in Devon. Has that got anything to do with franking things? No, oh. it has something to do with a shady deal St. Dunstan struck with his old foe the devil. And these three days are traditionally prone to cold weather and sharp frosts. So you might still have a frost over these three days. Well, St. Dunstan, he was famous for striking metal, wasn't he? Yes, the blacksmith saint who pinched the devil's nose with his tongs. Yeah, yeah. And he and the devil had a few run-ins, but apparently they'd come to some agreement about these three days that the devil could blast things with frost (laughs) for three days and then he had to to back off. Well, I guess uh, if you've got to do a deal, then I guess like three cold days in May is is probably fair as long as, you know, the rest of a county or the country or the mortal souls of people are kept safe. Exactly. It seems like a small price to pay, so I think St Dunstan probably had the better end of the deal there. Right. well, I'll get my warm coat back out. Yes, just in case. (laughs) With that, let's extract the county criers from all the fun of the toad fair and ring out the bells of St Clement's to welcome us to Middlesex. Okay, Eleanor, I've got to admit, I have absolutely no idea what or where Middlesex is. So help. Middlesex is located in South East England, and you might know it by another name because its area has now been almost entirely absorbed by London, England's capital. Well, that explains why I don't know about it, because we are talking about historic counties. We are talking about historic counties, and Middlesex, it still exists. Um, So if you've got a postcode in Greater London, I think you can still use Middlesex today. Um, So the county's bordered by three rivers, the Thames to the south, the Lee to the east and the Colne to the west, and to the north, it's bordered by Hertfordshire. Okay. The name comes from the Middle Saxon province of the Kingdom of Essex, which Uh is a bit of a mouthful, which is probably why it's been abbreviated to Middlesex (laughs) over the years. And it's actually the second smallest county in England after Rutland, which is the smallest. I'm going to be doing the Rutland episode next season and it hasn't been the easiest to find a plethora of folk tales <laughs> from Rutland. But I imagine if London is also Middlesex, or Middlesex is now in London, there's going to be an interesting amount of folk stories from there. Yes, uh, although it's not the biggest area, obviously a lot of stuff happened yeah. there and it's uh, it's concentrated in that area. And you and I actually both used to live in London. Yep. You were in Tottenham. Yep. Did you ever hear of any folk legends or customs specifically from Tottenham? I mean, I knew a lot of local legends, as in people who were 
legendary um, as a teacher. You got to meet quite a few characters, yes. parents, brothers as well. And I'm sisters. thinking more specifically goblins, although possibly some of those <laughs> attended the school as well. No, no, I have to say in my time in North London, I don't think I learned a single folktale, which is a bit sad, really. And that's an interesting point, because in his preliminary study of London folklore, Francis Saloria suggests that the records of folk customs and artefacts in London are not very good, uh-huh. with really slight literature and only one museum displaying really? amulets and charms and sort of folk objects. You see, that's curious to me because I think people associate London with the now, right? It's always about the modern, about what's happening. And although there is some heritage, as in lots of old buildings and so on and so forth, even those old buildings are often not as old as people think they are you know lots of them are christopher wren yes that's right they're kind of mostly 19th century buildings really so yeah deep deep tradition an ancient london it's a bit more of a mystery it is uh luckily there is some stuff to be going on with so we've got plenty to talk about today Uh, plenty pre-christopher wren (laughs) (laughs) now i lived in the new cross broccoli area of london and i did find out that new cross gate takes its name from a toll gate erected in 1718 Uh and you and i both have university connections there and one of your friends the poet robert browning lived in new cross in the 1840s hey that's cool yeah i'm currently doing my my masters at goldsmiths and really enjoying it so yeah i will i'll pop by robert browning's maybe maybe have for a cup of tea or something lovely (laughs) (laughs) so london was actually founded in 43 a.d by julius caesar that i knew although that is totally not what people thought for a very long time (laughs) of which more later okay it was destroyed by boudicca and abandoned when the romans left britain from about 500 onwards, an Anglo-Saxon settlement called Londonwick developed. Is, Wick just meaning town. Yeah, is that when the name started to be used more? Or has yes. it existed before? Um, it, I don't believe, had existed. Well, it was known as Londinium. Oh, okay, um, so, no, it had. But Londonwick, spelt with a U, yep. um, that was the first time that was used. It was the largest town in England as early as the 11th century. And most of the major institutions of government moved there then, post-Heptarchy, when when the individual Saxon kingdoms had been united. Yes, once sort of things moved from Wessex, once you'd had the Norman invasion and Winchester was the old Um, seat. William the Conqueror, like London. Okay. (laughs) Now this isn't going to be a complete rundown of the history of London (laughs) because as it has been the primary seat of English monarchs for centuries, that's rather too much to say to fit into an hour. Luckily, we're more interested in the weird and wonderful things which sidle along beside history, hawking homebrewed cures. (laughs) Probably for whooping cough. They're always for whooping cough. Yes, yes, folk tales, tell Well, for example, most children in England know the oranges and lemons rhyme, which refers to the various bells of the churches in the city of London. And the bells of St. Clement Dane still play the tune four times a day. Oh, that's cool. Every day. So if you're walking past there, listen out for that famous peal of bells. How fun. The city of London has been established so long that it's become an upholder of tradition, still celebrating its historic pageantry and role in running the city. Yeah. Although the City of London Corporation has been going since before Magna Carta, it's never actually been officially incorporated. What? <laughs> but it has its own government, which includes the Lord Mayor, the Court of Aldermen, the Court of Common Council, the Freemen, and the livery of the city. Now, I think this needs a little bit of unpacking, because if you're not from this country, or perhaps even not from around London, haven't spent much time there, you might be surprised to know that there is 
a city called the City of London. Within the city called London. Yeah, that's right. So that's a bizarre quirk, isn't it? So it is. The City of London is a much, much smaller, compact area. Yes, and it started as a sort of trade association. Yeah. So there's a system of livery companies. There are over 100, and they're like guilds or trade associations. And many of their customs, which are still practiced today, have been going for centuries. Well, like what? Well, I'll I'll get onto that. But I was just going to include some of my favourites. So they're they're collectives of people who practice a particular trade. Yes. And they're referred to as worshipful companies. And they still include vintners, drapers, spectacle makers and clock makers. Oh, okay. So you've got these kind of traditional trades and... I imagine when you go into one of these places, it's just lots and lots of old men hunched over very old and dusty equipment, tinkering away, at making clocks or draping things or making wine. <laughs> well, I'm not sure they do much of the trade practice in their traditional halls, but yeah. they do still gather there for events. And you can see historic artefacts from the company's history. Ooh, that in, say, the Apothecary's Hall, there's a wonderful display of historic apothecary bottles and jars. So you're allowed to just go into these girls? I think you can visit, yes, because uh, many of them have a little museum and display. Some of them it might be by prior arrangement because they are still used for official functions Ooh, and business. See, I've never been to any of these. This is all news oh, to me. London is full of these beautiful historic halls uh, for the livery companies. Okay. But you can see them all out and about and in action in the annual Lord Mayor's show, <laughs> which brings them all together for a parade and a display, which is really not dissimilar to the kind of spectacle people have enjoyed in England for a very long time. I mean, you've mentioned to me the Lord Mayor's show so many times. For me, completely alien. Never attended, don't know anything about it. Happens every November, so you can still have the chance. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think it's actually that far away from the Great Watch. What is the Great Watch? Is that from ah. the Clockmakers Guild? <laughs> no. <laughs> so the Great Watch was a medieval display of all of the armed forces oh. in the country, but also an excuse for performances and revelry. Guess who stopped it? <laughs> we don't need to guess. It's going to be Henry VIII. It was Henry VIII. <laughs> because he was worried that it was getting a bit too dangerous with all these armed people oh. and drunken folk on the streets. But it was revived for the coronation of Mary I. And oh. here in England, we've also just seen large-scale celebrations for the coronation of Charles III, which yeah. is very similar. You know, we've had parades of armed forces dressed in their military best. And... That kind of thing has been going on for such a long time. So, but in a way, we're living in that tradition still. I feel like, though, we could have done with a few more people dressed as green men, a few more tumblers, a few more fire breathers, you know, some people dressed as, as dragons and knights trotting through the I streets. Think my for celebrations could do with a bit more of that. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually have a personal connection with the Lord Mayor's show, as I was once in the parade. (laughs) Now, I'm not a member of a livery company, but I was walking with the Worshipful Company of Tax Advisors. Wow. And the theme was to embody taxes through the ages. Uh Uh-huh. Which kind of tax did you embody, Eleanor? I was female servant tax. (laughs) And honestly, I don't know what I was thinking because the Lord Mayor's show is in November and I chose a really skimpy costume. I was freezing. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you were. (laughs) But the most famous 
famous Lord Mayor of London comes straight from a folk tale. I'm, of course, talking about Dick Whittington. Yes. The folklore is based on the real life Richard Whittington, although there's a little bit less evidence about his magical cat. Mm -hmm. Dick's tale was the subject of ballads, puppet shows, and stories over the years, and is still a popular pantomime choice today. There's probably a Dick Whittington going on somewhere in England every January. See, when I think about kind of folklore of London, what I think about actually is murderers. Well, of course, Jack the Ripper. And uh, another well-known figure from Middlesex legend is, of course, Springheeled Jack. Yeah, a thief. Um, Well, a thief or a monster, I actually like to call Martin Springheeled Jack after he's had three coffees. (laughs) (laughs) Springheeled Jack was supposedly a monster, which could leap between buildings and leap out at his victims. Reports of his appearance vary, but may include clawed hands, eyes like red balls of fire, blue flaming breath... Although some accounts claim he had the appearance of a gentleman and could speak good English. Oh, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I also have an ancestor who is a Jack, a famous Jack from history, and that is Jumping Jack Flash. (laughs) And was he a a similarly bouncy Jack? (laughs) So he was known because he was the only person at the time to have been arrested and sent to the colonies in Australia for theft three times so he was arrested went there came back is he called jumping jack because he hopped between the two <laughs> jumping jack flash yeah that was what he was what he was known as always That's a trying great to run name. away yep, you should was... tell a story about jumping jack flash <laughs> well there was there was a musical about his life in australia which really? Is, yeah really strange thing fantastic yeah. we'll have to look that up <laughs> but you're right about the murderers we've got jack the ripper yep. of course and uh, various ghost legends oh loads of them i mean the tube is full of yes, all these sort of histories of ghosts space. and uh, also all of the times that they've disturbed uh, huge graves full of monks from many, many years ago and uh, also abandoned tube stations. I'm never not interested in someone's tale of an abandoned tube station. I think that they're really spooky. Oh, they're such scary places. Aren't yeah. they? I mean, even if you're in a, a current one and you're the only person on the platform there's something about them very atmospheric definitely and loads of great modern modernish 20th 21st century ghost stories about people seeing people on the tube they're the only person on the platform and you know they, they report this person to a guard or something like that and the guard then goes and looks at the cctv footage and there's nobody there you know those Ooh. kinds of t- <laughs> <laughs> oh yes gets the hair standing up on your arms doesn't it <laughs> There's various tales about the marshes which surround London oh, as okay. well. Now, almost all of those have been drained now, haven't they? Yes, there's a beast of Hackney marshes. And Ooh. I found a fascinating story about a lost village called Ezek somewhere on the Walthamstone marshes, Whoa. which you can walk across now. They've, yeah. they've created walkways. Now, apparently this village can pop in and out of existence. What? And you might hear the sounds of the village without being able to see it. No. And they say that if you suddenly find an old paved road in the marshes, you should not take it unless you have something to trade. That's so cool. What Isn't an amazing it amazing? story. Yeah. It's sort of it's it's somewhere between a lost village, a sunken city, or even an interdimensional portal. Wow. Of which there are tons, supposedly, in no. London. Oh yeah. I found a fascinating blog, um, actually just called Portals of London. Right. Which oh is such a rabbit hole <laughs> if you have a spare few hours. Okay. Unsurprisingly, these portals are absolutely everywhere. Come on, highlights, please, please. Honestly, there's a 
map on there as big as the tube map. Yeah. You name it, there's probably an interdimensional oh, portal. Wow. But they, they also have lots of interesting folklore and information as well. And actually introduced me to the Deptford Creek Necker. Necker? Yes, it's another water creature. It's, it's like our Nucker. It's right. another word. You get all of this Nucker, Neck, Nixie, Necker, Nicker, yeah. popping up slightly regional variations in that. Okay. Uh, well, now this, this Necker might be anything from a mermaid to a shelly coat to some sort of horrible serpent. Right. But okay. the place where it appears, even now, supposedly gives people a horrible draining feeling Ooh. and bones regularly wash up there all sorts of bones of things which probably shouldn't really be in the river Thames. Creek Necker amazing although actually the river Thames itself which we haven't yet talked about has a wealth of legends attached to it uh, it's got magic myth murder and monsters okay. and um, even its own genius loci uh, old father Thames yes the old father Thames I know that's quite famous as his kind of god basically god, yeah, of, god yeah. of the river ancient river god and they it's a wonderful place for mudlarking yes so amazing finds are constantly being unearthed or should that be unrivered by mudlarkers from the Thames today. And just to explain, what is a mudlarker? A mudlarker is somebody who goes messing around in the mud of the riverbed looking for fun things. Yeah, and the, and the Thames, because it's a tidal river, of course, brings up new stuff uh, onto the banks. Although for a long time you wouldn't have wanted to climb down into the mud of the Thames because it was particularly toxic. Yes! <laughs> Well, some of the items found, I was reading, include a Roman brothel token. Uh -huh. So something you would have used to buy yourself a fine time in a Roman brothel. Yep. Some hyperactive eels who'd consumed cocaine, which had been flushed into the sewage system. Uh, uh, uh. And a giant statue of Michael Jackson, which went floating down the river. Oh, well, I mean, that's kind of folkloric, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Bethnal Green has some interesting folklore. Go on. There's the story of Bessie, daughter of a blind beggar who married a knight. And there's still a pub on the Whitechapel Road named The Blind Beggar in honour of that folktale. Okay. Also in Bethnal Green, we've got the Black Mulberry Tree, which Ooh. is linked to Bloody Bishop Bonner. Uh -huh. Because apparently he sat under it, presumably when planning who to burn next. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the, the tree survived bombing in the Second World War. And there's some theories floated which say it may be the origin of the rhyme round and round the mulberry bush. Okay, all right. That sounds quite interesting, although not, not too terrifying. So we feel like we're bringing the temperature down just a touch. Down from terrifying yeah. lookers and statues of Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Visitors to London who are worried about their lover being false might like to try this spell, which was recorded in use as late as 1928. Right, go on. Just throw some dragon's blood in the fire at midnight on a Friday and that lover will come right back to you. <laughs> oh, easily done. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fairly easily done. Well, you've got to find yourself a dragon to get his blood. Oh, no, it means the herb. Oh, all right, that's fine. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, I assumed it meant the herb. Maybe it does mean a natural dragon. Well, this is what I mean. Which means that somebody in 1928 found a dragon and either asked it for some of its blood or hurt it in some way. Well, presumably, yes. Information needed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so examples of folk heritage which can still be seen today, in addition to the Lord Mayor's show, include the annual sheep drive across London Bridge, really? which can be traced back to 1180. They still do it? They still do it. Whoa. They, they will do it this year. That's so cool. <laughs> and uh, the annual sheep drive 
is exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. They get a bunch of sheep. Yep. And they drive them across London Bridge. <laughs> and that's to celebrate the wool trade essentially being allowed to come into the city and hawk their wares. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's one of those things in sort of films from the 60s or sometimes even the modern day it's suggested to be terribly romantic to drive across london bridge but when you actually drive across london bridge it's annoying because traffic well i think today they might do it on southwark bridge uh, instead southwark bridge is a very beautifully painted bridge next one down from london bridge yeah, yeah. and it's much quieter they will say if you see someone on southwark bridge they're lost <laughs> and they didn't mean Excellent. to get on that bridge <laughs> near southwark bridge at 12th night on Bankside, the holly man still arrives to lead mummery and dancing oh excellency now that's a job i would like to have on my business card holly man yes that's right i'm sure you can apply <laughs> <laughs> and pearly kings and queens an institution which evolved from 19th century costermongers in london's east end they're still around today, fundraising and leading charitable works. Why are they called pearly kings and queens? Um, so that's because they cover their outfits in mother of pearl buttons. Oh, Have you ever seen a pearly? No, never. Have you not? No, of course oh, not. They're amazing. Um, we will put some pictures up on the blog. Um, essentially, I think the first pearly king decided to make himself stand out in order to collect money for charity oh. by covering his quite plain suit in mother of pearl buttons and they're often stitched on in quite intricate designs wow they're really interesting they, again it's usually black clothes so they really stand out that sounds amazing great yeah you can you can definitely still see those around at sort of celebratory events definitely at the Lord Mayor's show <laughs> I sound like I, I think the Lord Mayor's show ought to sponsor the podcast <laughs> I sound like I'm plugging it <laughs> of course William the Conqueror's original fortress the Tower of London yeah has its own myth which is particularly relevant to us go on go on so the Tower of London has a conspiracy of resident ravens yeah and their presence is believed to be vital to protecting the country well I think it probably will be. The superstition goes that if the ravens are lost or fly away, the crown will fall and Britain with it. Whoa. So theoretically, if people were going to raise a threat against our nation, the place they should actually target is the ravens yes. of the Tower of London. Yeah, theoretically. Whoa. So they've always kept ravens there, although some do occasionally fly away yeah, understandably. <laughs> and i was reading that one of them was actually fired because he was a naughty raven really <laughs> got yeah. sacked. He, he got sacked from his his role as a tower guardian <laughs> um, and uh, i think either released into the wild or just taken away got his gronking orders <laughs> off you go the, the ravens are really beautiful though and the tower of london's website has a page introducing them so you can go and see them <laughs> no my way. favorite is branwen the raven because i remember her birth being announced in the news oh Although they do grow into noble birds, of course, they're the cutest, fluffiest chicks. It's a little bit wild how adorable they're being. <laughs> Apparently, the ravens of the Tower of London have a favourite treat, which oh, is yeah? biscuits soaked in blood. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you want to attract ravens Dra to your garden... Dragon's blood or just any kind? Uh, no, I think just any kind oh, will okay. do. <laughs> I, I should clarify, this is not the favourite treat of the Three Ravens podcast. <laughs> we prefer our biscuits unsoaked in gore, if at all possible. Yes, I would be quite depressed if we started to get loads of packages through the post box. <laughs> what? 
Choco Leibniz <laughs> dipped in. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> now, it's time to take us back to London's very distant, but not necessarily accurate past. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. These days, Britain is the best of islands, as everybody knows. Its rivers are abundant with fish, its forest glades grow flowers of every colour, its meadows are green with grass, and its skies alive with birdsong. But Britain was once wild and empty, lashed by rain from every side and bogged down with thick, muddy slurry. Nobody at all lived here, and even the birds gave its frowning black clouds a wide berth. It was not until Albina and her sisters came and dug their blood-stained hands into its claggy soil that Britain started to become the pleasant land we know today. Let me tell you about Albina. She was the eldest of 50 sisters, and while that may seem like a lot to you now, let me tell you that it was far more common then before the days of libraries and other such excellent distractions. Now these sisters were the daughters of the king of Syria, and they all have fine qualities and skills in all sorts of areas. Kings were very headstrong back then, and were often in the habit of making decisions for other people without consulting their feelings. Nowadays kings are much calmer sorts of beings and can usually be placated with a nice quiche. But the king of Syria wasn't interested in quiche, he was interested in power and in making the right alliances. So he determined to marry all 50 of his daughters off to influential people of his choosing, all on the same day, for he was strong-willed, determined, and also extremely good at planning. While the palace was all in a bustle, sewing seed pearls to 50 silk veils and trying to work out how to support the weight of a 50-tier wedding cake, Albina and her sisters gathered in secret for a council. I don't think we can cancel the wedding, said Justina reasonably. The invitations have been sent out and it would be a shame after all the hard work everybody's put into it. But we've never even met these men, said Tristina, bursting into tears. They might be horrible. The sisters discussed it for hours and I'm not sure quite how they reached this conclusion but they decided that the best course of action would be to go through with the wedding, marry the men, and then murder them all in bed on the wedding night. That way, everybody in the kingdom could still enjoy the party, and they'd all still be free. Even their father couldn't complain, said Georgina, because they would inherit all the husband's worldly goods anyway. It would be doing everybody a favour. The wedding day came and the bells were rung and the sisters curled their eyelashes and tied their garters and stuffed their faces with wedding cake and danced the night away. And then in the early hours of the next morning, when their new husbands were snoring beside them, they each took out a jewelled hairpin and stabbed their hapless men through the heart. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the move was less popular in Syria than the sisters had anticipated. The king wrung his hands and the courtiers protested and the people rioted in the streets. It was hard to save face after what had happened, so the poor king thought that the best thing to do was set Albina and the rest of his daughters off in a boat and forbid them to ever return to Syria. And he did keep all the dead husband's worldly goods after all, so in time he recovered from the whole unfortunate episode. 
thinking that the sisters didn't stand much of a chance, having very little seafaring experience. But they took to it well and were soon enough plotting their course by the stars and reading the winds and fishing for great swordfish and salting them in barrels. In some little while, they arrived on the shores of Britain, which they named Albion after their eldest sister, and travelled about until they found a nice place to settle. It was somewhere near the area we call Surrey today, for the sisters called it Little Syria in honour of their home, and it's been abbreviated and mispronounced ever since. Well, they did wonders for getting everything going in Albion. They cut trees and built halls and homesteads. They captured the wild cattle and ponies and farmed them. They made their own laws and lived the way they chose. Some of the sisters went off to found their own settlements, but each traded with the other using money made from stones with holes in them. If you look into streams and shallows today, you may still see them, those coins of Albina and the first women. There started to be a slight feeling of loneliness and worry for the future, since all the women were sisters and nobody was getting any younger and backs and knees were starting to go and they were running out of options. So Albina and the others gathered together for another council. We should take the boats and sail to another land, said Sabrina, who was the chief boat builder and responsible for all Albion's bridges and dams. We could conquer France, said Martina, hopefully. She was in charge of Albion's armies, training the sisters for battle, and she was always talking about conquering France. It may be that her spirit lived on in many later English kings. Florentina thought that they should train the beasts of Albion to talk and work for them, and Valentina thought that they should send out letters summoning men to the island. There were many more ideas too, and... Again, I'm not quite sure how they reached this conclusion, but they decided that the best course of action would be to gather in one of their great stone circles and summon up a demon. This demon's name was Leonard, and he was very interested to hear about the sister's little problem. You see, Leonard and his various friends and cousins had been rather lonely too. The demons were not altogether the picture of chivalry, some had wings, and some had tails, and some were mostly composed of knees, apart from the bits which mattered. But they were good for a laugh and eager to please, and that was all that was important, really. They made many visits, popping into Albion through the stone circle, and to all reports it was an arrangement which satisfied everybody. Sooner rather than later, Albina and her sisters welcomed the pitter-patter of small feet, which became larger and larger feet as the years went on. Sometimes that's what happens when demons and people have fun together. They create descendants who are larger than life. That's right, the sisters' offspring were all giants. But let's spin forward through time a little while, years after Albina first peered into the extra-long cradle of her enormous baby, and gaze into the destiny of another baby, one who was born to be a hero. The soothsayer peered at the child's mother's belly, dangling a strange talisman over it. Well, said the proud father-to-be anxiously, what'll it be? Ooh, a boy, certainly, said the soothsayer as the talisman span and danced on its chain. 
Well, everybody was very happy and the soothsayer really should have left it there. But for some reason he carried on talking and went on to prophesy that the baby boy would be the death of both of his parents, would wander through many lands and eventually become the father of a nation. There is such a thing as too much information and it's fair to say that the soothsayer was not seen around anymore. The baby was born and they named him Brutus. But his mother did not live to see his first sunset, so that was one part of the prophecy fulfilled. His father kept a close eye on him for 15 years, but one day, when he and Brutus were out hunting, Brutus mistakenly shot his father, believing him to be a stag. After that, his relations thought it was high time Brutus started fulfilling the next part of the prophecy and wandering to many lands, preferably those as far as possible away from theirs, and they exiled him without further delay. Brutus wandered for many moons, and he grew great in strength and in nobility. He freed his Trojan ancestors from slavery by the unscrupulous Greeks and built himself an army. He solved land disputes. He enchanted princesses with his skillful swordsmanship. He rescued stranded kittens from trees. One of the Trojans he'd emancipated was named Corineus, and this man became Brutus's greatest friend. They had many escapades together, and their bonds strengthened because neither truly had anywhere to call home. One day, Brutus and Corineus were engaged in manly pursuits, shooting, hunting, braiding each other's hair, when they came upon a deserted city. The buildings were all in ruins, except for a temple to Diana. The friends had the inspiration to pray to the goddess, so they poured libations and called to her as the hope of all who ride in the wild woodlands to guide them to a safe haven they might call home. The goddess appeared before them with her silver hunting bow bent bright like the moon's crescent, and she told them of an island surrounded by sea, now the home of bloodthirsty giants, where Brutus could make a second Troy and rule it as its king. Well, Brutus and Corineus called to their forces, and they set sail right away in search of the island Diana had promised. There were no compasses in Brutus's youth, so they managed to visit Africa, Aquitaine and Andorra before eventually sighting the green and misty shores of Albion, where they sailed straight up the River Dart and landed at Totnes. If you go to Totnes today, you can still see the stone touched by Brutus's toe as he jumped ashore. All was going very well as Brutus, Corineus and their forces made their way northeast from Totnes, exploring the apparently empty land Diana had directed them towards. But Albion was not available to anybody who cared to claim it. It was inhabited by the giants, the descendants of Albina and her sisters and their demon lovers. And Brutus found this out one night when he'd made camp and a monstrous giant came crashing through the tents, crushing soldiers under his size 19 boots and roaring with rage. Brutus and Corineus realised that they had a rather large problem on their hands. The giants weren't too keen on the arrival of the Trojans either. When the news of their landing was brought to the Council of Giants, there was a great uproar amongst them. Oh, get into our stores and nibble all our cheeses, said the giant Brackenbog, who imagined the Trojans to be something like mice. 
Oh, recap us with your nasty little clubs, said the giant frog and hog. Come down, said the king of the giants, whose name was Gog Magog. He was the grandson of Albina herself, and he was particularly repulsive in appearance, being covered from head to foot in thick grey-green hair. These giants, rather like their grandmothers, were not known for the quality of their decision-making, and they hadn't reached any kind of positive agreement before a challenge arrived in handwriting which seemed to the giants to be excessively and awkwardly small. Pass me my glasses, said Gog Magog, and proceeded to read out the challenge. Brutus of Troy called the giants to a wrestling match between their champion and his, with the winner declared king of the land once and for all. Some of the giants were worried, thinking it must be a trap, but Gog Magog scoffed at the thought of wrestling Brutus or one of his tiny friends. After all, how could he possibly lose? The day set for the wrestling match arrived. The giants gathered, drumming tree branches on the ground and howling, and the Trojans gathered too. Brutus's old friend Corineus was their champion, for he was the best wrestler among them all. He was on the pitch early, limbering up, doing his stretches. Gog Magog showed up 15 minutes late with a horn of mead. What did I miss? he said, scoffing at Corineus. This, he thought, would be an easy win. Fifteen seconds later, the giant was lying in a puddle of spilt mead as Corineus had easily toppled him with a blow to the back of his ankle. Realising that it might not be quite so simple as he'd hoped, Gog Magog roared in fury and surged into action. The contest began in earnest. The two champions rushed towards each other, grabbing each other in a tight hold. Gog Magog used all his strength and broke three of Corineus's ribs and gave him a fair few bruises too. Brutus, watching the fight and fearing for his best friend's life, closed his eyes and said a prayer to Diana, asking her for her aid. In a voice like the silken whisper of an arrow flying past your ear, the goddess spoke to him, telling him not to be afraid. She was as good as her word. There seemed suddenly to be a silver light about Corineus which flashed in his eyes and outlined his muscular limbs. He heaved the giant Gogmagog up on his shoulders and ran as fast as he could to the edge of the cliff nearby. There he hurled the giant down onto the sharp reef of rocks below. The seas below the cliff ran greenish-grey with the giant king's blood as his body was dashed into a thousand pieces. That place is still called Gog Magog's Leap to this very day. The giants were defeated, and that is how Brutus of Troy became king of the land once and for all. The land which had been Albion was renamed after him, and it's still called Britain to this day. Those Trojans who had travelled and fought alongside Brutus began calling themselves Britons, and even their language, which was a sort of crooked combination of Trojan and Greek, was now the British tongue. As for his dear friend Corineus, Brutus rewarded him by giving him the southernmost tip of Britain to rule as his own, and from then on that place has been named Cornwall, after the hero who defeated the giant Gog Magog. Brutus travelled the length and breadth of his new land searching for a suitable spot to make his capital. 
At last he came to the banks of the River Thames in the heart of Middlesex. And there the goddess Diana appeared to him, and he knew he'd found the right place. He built his great city there and called it New Troy, which name it was known by until the days of Lud. But that's another story. And in time, the remaining giants who were the descendants of Albina and the friends of Brutus who'd been Trojans all settled down with each other. Over time, their tallness has mostly been bred out of them, although every so often one comes along who grows over six foot five. There's the music of my story. Long may it last in peaceful harmony. So, Martin, how do you feel after that completely accurate and historical retelling of the founding of London? Documentary ready? <laughs> well, I mean, firstly, I think that is by far the silliest story we've so far had and on the Three every Ravens word podcast. True. Yeah, of course, every word <laughs> true. Now, I've got to go through my own memory banks and think now the only thing that I really knew about Brutus this mythical founder of England was that after his death or as he approached his death he decided to split the kingdom between his three sons and from that myth we have the basis of King Lear basically the Shakespeare play. Yes, that's one of the things cited as the basis for King Lear. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Oh, the Brutus of Troy thing. It's just wild. And I was reading that it came about through two things. Okay. One of which was a spelling mistake <laughs> by a ninth century monk called Nennius. <laughs> and the other of which was Geoffrey of Monmouth's astounding disregard for basic facts. Yeah, he wasn't the biggest fan of facts, was he, really? He would never let them get in the way of a good story. <laughs> never. So, go on, tell so me So, apparently, Nennius, yeah. when chronicling the history of Britain, wrote about an early British tribe called the Trinobantes. Yeah. But misspelt it as the Trinobantes, uh-huh. meaning the new Trojans. So, Monmouth just took that and was like, Aha! Yep, took that error, ran with it, and oh boy, did he run far. (laughs) Brutus of Troy, the supposed founder of London, has this almost Oedipal beginning with the prophecy he'll destroy his parents, side order of the death of William Rufus when he he accidentally shoots his own father in the forest. Yeah, mistakes him for a deer. There's elements of Moses, because he frees the Trojan slaves. This is after the Trojan War, um, when all the Trojans have been enslaved by the Greek forces. Yep. He frees them. And there's a bit of odyssey in there too. He has an episode with sirens. Ugh. And a few more sort of medieval romance-style chapters when he's behaving in a chivalric manner or accidentally starting civil war. Oh, is he? Or, oh, yeah. <laughs> he gets around as Brutus. But all these giant babies born from Albina and her sisters. Is that Monmouth too? Um, that is not actually in Monmouth. Okay. Uh, he he mentions the giants and briefly where they came from. But there's another source of that story, which does pop up in, in various places. Okay. Um, it's, it's fairly well documented. <laughs> uh, <laughs> definitely 100% happened. Yeah, of course. Uh, I got to say, it's my favourite bit. Albina and the sex demons. Mm. And the race of giants. I mean, for anyone who's seen our pictures on social media, you'll know that I'm not very tall. So it comforts me to think that somewhere in my genetics, there are giants. Yeah, of course, naturally. And also Leonard. Yes. <laughs> now, 
I thought that this Leonard name was just you being hilarious, but you've subsequently told me in that in-between gap where I was just wetting myself laughing that Leonard is an actual recorded demon. Yes, he is in the Dictionnaire Infernal, which is a record of the names of demons, and he is the Grand Master of Orgies. What? There's a lovely picture of Leonard on Wikipedia. Treat yourself. Oh, boy, well, that's going on the blog. What I really love about the Nennius, Geoffrey of Monmouth, Brutus of Troy thing yeah. is that it is everywhere. It persisted for a really long time. <laughs> it was regarded as fact well into the 17th century. Uh-huh. It is in Spencer's Fairy Queen. It is in Hollinshead's Chronicles. It is in William Blake, Chaucer, Shakespeare. Apparently, John Milton, the poet, even almost wrote a brutiad about the story instead of Paradise no Lost. Way. Yes. To the point where the word brute actually came to mean a chronicle of English history for wow. a while after Brutus. And monarchs of Britain have claimed descent from this probably entirely fictional person for centuries. That is so, so interesting. And I've got to ask about Gog Magog, because in my mind, and this all links back to the Lord Mayor's show, I thought there were two different giants, Gog and Magog. Well, you're absolutely right. Gog Magog has been split subsequently into two giant brothers, Gog and Magog, who are still carried in the Lord Mayor's show today on a float and whose statues can still be seen guarding the Guildhall. Yeah, I thought they were the protectors of London. Gog yeah, and Magog. they are. So one of the versions of the story goes that Gog Magog was dragged in chains back to London by yeah. Brutus and Coroneus and affixed in the Guildhall in its porch as a guardian of London. Oh, okay. And some people think one of the statues is actually Coroneus, who was meant to be a very tall man as well. Oh, and then sort of redecorated yeah. or, but, or fixed. Um, but no, they've, they've turned them into the two giants, Gog and Magog, now. And you can still see them in the Lord Mayor's show, the big effigies, and which is quite amazing. And on that, giants have been linked to the pageantry of England and especially of London for a really long time. We've got records of giant puppets being used in parades and festivals as early as the 1400s. So a puppet giant called Champion met Henry V as he rode into London in triumph. And there's quite a detailed account of the mechanisms that made this puppet bow its head, wave to the queen, move its head around. So it was quite intricate and obviously completely fascinated me. (laughs) How, how, how interesting. So, Martin, where will we be wandering to next week and what can we look forward to? Next week, we are headed to Shropshire, which is extraordinarily rich in folklore. But we're going to be telling a story of a person that you mentioned today. Oh, really? None other than Dick Whittington. How exciting. Looking forward to hearing more about that magical cat. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like more Three Ravens delights, including exclusive stories, our monthly newsletter and our archive of episodes ad-free, then please consider joining our Conspiracy of Ravens on Patreon for just $3 a month. And that's at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Our website at threeravenspodcast.com features our weekly blog which has lots of extra content and pictures for every episode and of course the map in case you get lost as we do all the time (laughs) your comments emails and beautiful art really do make us so happy so please get in touch via three ravens podcast at gmail.com until next time then while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods Thank 
links and credit go to the Chronicle of London blog, the Historic UK website, the Portals of London blog, Elkinus Settles' new history of the Trojan Wars and Troy's destruction, and of course, national hero Geoffrey of Monmouth. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon. Our logo and graphic design work is by Ollie James Dare, and the Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, derry, 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 down, down.